Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that our reading tonight is the word of the Lord. We thank you for the message that it contains for us. And Lord, as we listen, may we hear your voice speak to us. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's um, a terrible story, isn't it? Terrible, terrible story. You can imagine how it would be reported if it was today. Here we are in the the camp of the Israelites, and uh, the scene is looking terrible. Uh, Latest reports say the death toll is reaching almost 15,000 people, 15,000 people dead. It would be truly horrific, wouldn't it, to be there. And whilst uh, some people might uh, try to explain uh, this disaster away on a purely human level, maybe uh, uh, marshy areas in the desert, which uh, the top layer of soil is dried by the sun to to give an impression it's a hard ground, but then it cracks and it opens up and the the people core sink into uh, the marsh underneath, swallows them up. Or a fire breaks out in this closely packed encampment. And then there's followed by, and that's followed by an outbreak of dysentery or malaria or, or some other disease as a result of the terrible living conditions. But if you were to do that, you would be entirely missing the point. Because this is not a human disaster. The passage is very clear here. All of this death and destruction is at the hands of God. Not nature or an angry Moses or an overzealous Aaron, God has caused these deaths. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's why we don't, read the, uh, why we don't like to uh, read the Old Testament very much. I mean, God's not like that, is he? I mean, he's different in the New Testament, isn't he? He doesn't gobble people up into the ground and burn them with fire. He's, he's nice and lovely and forgiving. I had a friend who was a bit like that, uh, she, was a, she was a nun, and she was one of the curates who joined uh, this diocese at the same time as me. And I've told you the story before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, she was at a meeting, an ecumenical meeting, she described, and she described how terrible it was because a Baptist minister stood up and started talking about God's wrath, God's anger. And she said it's even worse than that because her boss, the vicar, didn't say anything. So it's left to her as the humble curate to stand up and say, as Anglicans... We don't believe in God's wrath. And I'd say, well, precisely because we are Anglicans and because Anglicans traditionally believe in the Bible as their final authority, we do believe in God's wrath. We do believe that God gets angry with sin. We do believe that the Israelites' problem in the desert was not to do with lack of food or lack of comfort or lack of direction. Their biggest problem was the anger of God towards their sin. So we're not meant to try and explain the story away in human terms. We're not meant to try and do that. We're meant to take the story seriously, extremely seriously. Turn with me to page 1,151 in 1 Corinthians. And we'll start in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians and chapter 10 tells us why we should read and why we should preach the book of Numbers. You see this chapter here, it looks back to the book of Numbers and the Israelites' time in the desert. 
And it reminds us of what happened to them there and the sins that they fell into. Verse 10 talks about how some of them were killed by the destroying angel. And verse 11 says, these things happened to them as an example for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. These things happened to them as an example to us. But what precisely had they done uh, which was uh, to serve as a, a bad example to us. Well, if you look back up to uh, verse 6 there, where you're, you'll see um, evil things. In 7, you see idolatry. Um, you see pagan revelry. We see sexual immorality. In verse 8, we see testing the Lord in verse 9. All of those things are terrible things. And of course, we might expect that to, uh, to bring on the anger of God. But what actually got them? was verse 10. They were grumbling. That's a surprise, isn't it? Grumbling at the end of that list. But it was their grumbling that killed them. It was their grumbling that serves as such a negative example to us. Well, I've been called uh, several times, even in this church, uh, a bit of an Eeyore. I do like to uh, grumble a little bit. And like most Eeyores, I'm quite content with my Eeyore status, really. I quite like being an Eeyore. And I know that's not very good, because I know it can turn people off and put people, uh, I don't know, turn them off. But I don't expect to be swallowed up in the ground or consumed by fire, because I like to have a little whinge about something now and again. So what was the problem here? Do we worship a grumpy God who's likely to turn on us for the tiniest of reasons? Well, no, the Old Testament makes it very clear that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin, rebellion. The last time we read that was uh, right here in Numbers and chapter 14, verse 18. But it's repeated many times in the Old Testament. The Lord is slow to anger, compassionate and gracious. But of course, when uh, people uh, see that, they uh, want to push him. A little bit further, they want to push him to see how far they can, they can take him before he does become angry. And isn't that the stories that we've seen in, in numbers time and time again? We, we've seen them brought out of Egypt, not because of anything that they've done, not because they're special in themselves, but just because the Lord loved them and chose them. The Lord gave them food and water in the desert. He gave them a great cloud by day and a fire by night to guide them. And most of all, he gave them his very own presence amongst them with the tabernacle and Aaron's sacrifices that he made on their behalf. But still, the Israelites grumbled, didn't they? And eventually they reached the promised land. And they took one look at it with the spies and they agreed. They agreed that it was a wonderful place. But then they refused to go in, didn't they? Because the inhabitants were too big. They were scared to take hold of the promise that God had given to them. And that's why God puts off the fulfillment of that promise for another 40 years. That's why those people um, are going to wander around the desert and never enter the the promised lands. They've rejected the very salvation that God has given them. They said it was too difficult. Nothing that God did for them was good enough. And the wonder is, in many ways, that they weren't killed there and then. But, of course, God is slow to anger and compassionate. You see, that generation will die out in the deserts. They are under a death sentence already. As we read this passage, those people are already under a death sentence. But their children 
will enter. And chapter 15, which we've skipped over in our series, is wonderfully encouraging, if a little bit heavy going. It begins there in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land, I am giving you as a home. And then reminds them of all the laws they need to follow when they reach there. So God's grace isn't exhausted. In fact, all those laws in chapter 15 assume that they're going to have wonderful crops, lots of animals. They're going to have huge blessing from God. And they will turn to God and they will say, thanks. The Lord is slow to anger and compassionate. And we need to remember that as we go into number 16. Because it's all necessary background to what we're going to read. Let's look at this chapter. It's a complicated chapter. Let's look at it in three parts. Three complaints. The three complaints that are made against Moses and Aaron. So the first complaint roughly translates as, Who needs you? We're all holy here. Who needs you? We're all holy here. So look at verse 1. It's on page 153. Korah, son of Izar, the son of Korath, the son of Levi and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. That is, they took men, and they rose up against Moses and Aaron. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? You see that? Who needs you? We're all holy here. Now, it's easy as we read on to suspect the real motives of Korah and his gang of respectable community leaders. You see, they already had considerable status among the people. Korah was a Levite. That didn't make him a priest. They were the sons of Aaron. But they were still pretty special. Numbers chapter 4 tells us that the Korahites, Korah's family, were in charge of the most holy things in God's tabernacle. So when the camp was on the move, the Korahites carried the ark and the lampstand and all the plates and bowls used in the sacrifices and everything else that was holy in that tent of meeting. So they were pretty special and they worked very closely with Aaron and the other priests. And just look at verses 8 and 9 here. So Moses said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? You see, they were already special. But make no mistake, there is also naked ambition here. Korah is a bit like Gordon Brown to Moses' Tony Blair. He was always snapping at his heels. Moses points this out in verse 10. He says to Korah, He, God, has brought you, the rebels, and all you follow Levites near himself. That's a great privilege. But now, you're reaching out and you're trying to get the priesthood too. Do you see that? Now, of course, in one sense, Korah was absolutely right. Theologically, all the people of Israel were special. They were his chosen people. In Exodus 19, Moses tell, himself tells them that they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in chapter 15, the, the chapter just before this episode, they're told to wear tassels on their clothes. So see that, just down there, in verses 37 to 41 of chapter 15, the last section there. They're told to wear tassels with a blue cord running through the tassel. 
What on earth was that all about? Of course, blue was the royal colour. It was an expensive dye, the colour most often used to describe the furnishings and decorations inside the tabernacle itself. So this colour blue reminded them that they were the chosen people. They were special. They were the royal priesthood. Korah was right to that extent. But then, of course, he pushed God too far. He went that little bit further. And he tried to reject God's chosen leader and priest. He said, who needs you? He said, we are all holy. We know God as well as you do. Let us tell us. Let us say uh, what God is like. Let us tell you what God is like. And see, that's the real problem. Because in the end of the day, their complaint was not against Aaron. They were rejecting God's chosen mediator. They were actually grumbling against the Lord. Verse 11 tells us that. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together, it says. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? You see, they had forgotten that when Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Aaron themselves grumbled against Moses in chapter 12, they were told very firmly, they were told, when the prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Do you see that? You see, no other prophet could speak face to face with God as Moses did. Moses had this unique privilege to see the form of the Lord. Moses was God's chosen means of revealing himself to his people. By rejecting Moses, Korah was rejecting God's revelation of himself. And them saying that I know God just as well as Moses does. Let me tell you what God is like. They were essentially saying, listen, there's no danger here, folks. We're all holy. We're all good enough. We're all on good enough terms with God. We can approach him just as Moses does. And of course, that's what they tried to do. But you see, by rejecting Moses and Aaron, they were also rejecting Jesus. Why, you say? That's a bit of a jump. Well, in two senses. Firstly, because Moses and Aaron were both pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament. You see, Moses points to Christ as one who speaks face to face with God and was sent to redeem his people. Aaron points to Christ as one who sacrifices to atone for the guilt of God's people. He points to Christ's final sacrifice once and for all to atone for our guilt, yours and mine. But secondly, by saying there is no danger, we can all approach God, they were saying something even more serious. They were saying, actually, there's no need for Christ. We don't need him. We don't need his sacrifice. The work that, the work that he was sent to do was senseless, without worth. You see, Korah and his followers were belittling the sacrifice of Aaron. And actually, anybody who says today that, well, you know, every human being is made in the image of God, they'll all be saved, regardless of their beliefs. As one vicar tried to explain to me the other day, just two weeks ago. But they're belittling the sacrifice of Christ. 
When Christian leaders hold multi-faith services and say a Muslim approach to God is just as valid as following Jesus, they're belittling Christ and belittling his sacrifice. It's the sin of Korah. Or when people set themselves up as priests today and, be, and they want to be called father this or father that. And they, want, and they allow, even if they don't believe themselves, but they allow people to feed, believe that they're making a sacrifice of bread and wine on the altar in church. Then they're making for themselves a priesthood that has already been fulfilled and replaced by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They're belittling Christ and the work that he came to do. You see, when Korah said, who needs you? We're all holy here. He was not just saying it to Moses and Aaron, he was saying it to Jesus. He was claiming that we were all good enough to approach God with no fear. Like my friend, the Anglican nun, they were leaders who didn't like what the Bible had to say about judgment and God's holiness. So they decided to ignore that and suggest that everyone's going to be okay in the end. We don't need to believe in anybody or anything. We're all made in God's image. We're all weakly worthy, all equally holy in God's sight. Well, in a moment, we'll see what God thought of that. But first, we need to look at the second complaint. And the second complaint was a little bit different. You see, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, were basically saying, what have you brought us to? We were better off before. You see, they said in verse 13, isn't it enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert, and now you want to lord it over us? Hang on. What are they saying? They're saying here that Egypt was flowing with milk and honey. No, it wasn't. We've already seen that, haven't we, several times during the series. Egypt was a place of cruelty, of shortage and daily rations. And Moses, wanting to lord it over them, well, no, he doesn't. He just wants to be, uh, he's just been chosen by God to tell them what's best for them. And if you remember rightly, Moses wasn't very keen on that idea at all. And then in verses 14, they say, Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? In other words, will you hoodwink them or deceive them any longer? Well, they hadn't entered the land of milk and honey, had they? But whose fault was that? Moses led them to the land. They'd sent in spies, and they turned it down. They'd seen the fortified cities and the giants in chapter 13. They were too scared to go in. It was their decision. It wasn't Moses preventing them. And yet they tried to blame that on Moses too. So they're saying to Moses, your promises are no good. We want our promised land now, and we want it on our own terms, and preferably without any big people in it. You see, these were leaders who couldn't really come to terms with their new position. They'd been set free for slavery, given positions of responsibility among the people of God, but they liked it better how they were before. And sometimes us Christians are like that, aren't we? Sometimes we uh, think we were better off before we were Christians. We didn't have to work so hard. Life was more fun. But of course it wasn't, was it? Just as Egypt was no land of milk and honey, but our memories deceive us sometimes, don't they? And we shouldn't let it happen. Or perhaps uh, some Christians think, well, this land of promise isn't coming. Where's this close fellowship between Christians? Where's the sense of family 
and everyone looking to become more like Jesus together. We're not seeing the promise of Jesus fulfilled in our lives. And that's the sin of Dathan and Abiram as well. They had forgotten that it was the Israelites who decided not to go into lands. They had the opportunity, but their faith failed them. And perhaps we aren't seeing the promise of transformed lives and transformed relationships in our own experience because of our own fear of change. All the reactions of friends and colleagues if we start to live life differently. Perhaps those are the, fr- the giants that we're afraid of. So after these two complaints, God sets Korah, Dathan, and Abram a test, doesn't he? It's a basic test of their leadership and priestly potential. If they want to be priests and leaders in their own right, let's see if they can approach the holiness of the living God by burning some incense before the Lord's. At that point, they should have been warned because in Leviticus 10, Aaron had lost two of his own sons uh, when they tried to burn unauthorized incense before the Lord's. Aaron knew that this task may have been basic, it wasn't complicated, but it was dangerous. Of course, again, we should remember at this point that these people are already under a death sentence for rebelling against the Lord's. They're already condemned to die in the desert before they reach the promised land. But Ian was right to pause, wasn't he? When the ground opened up and swallowed their households and families, and the 250 men offering incense, including Korah, are consumed in the fire of God's judgments, in a sense, of course, that death sentence is just being brought forward. But it doesn't make it any easier. And the remains of the bronze censers were overlaid on the altar as a reminder that no one except a descendant of Aaron should approach the Lord, verse 40. Well, regrettably, our denomination is full of people like Korah who deny the uniqueness of Christ and the necessity of a sacrifice. In a way, it was brought home to me uh, during my first ordination retreat as a curate. Um, I don't know if you, uh, if you read one of these psalms out of the Anglican service book, they have little red dots at some of the end of the end of lines. And basically, the little red dot means that you're supposed to pause for about three seconds. Anyway, I forgot this, being very stupid. And uh, on the first day of the retreat, I led the whole company in saying the psalm with no pause at all in any of the red dots. And if I'm truthful, I did remember, actually, after about the, first, the fifth or the sixth red dot, but I decided to carry on anyway because it was quite fun. The next day, the following morning, the leader of the retreat came in and told us all collectively off for not leaving the three-second pause at the end of the lines in the Psalms. Now, I didn't mind that. But I did mind that that was considered a more serious infringement of Anglican order than the practice of praying for the dead, which persisted throughout the whole weekend and received no comment at all. You see, praying for the dead suggests a belief in purgatory, which is explicitly condemned in the Ankan Articles of Religion. Why? Because it is the sin of Korah. If people can be saved from purgatory by the prayers of priests and relatives after their death, then clearly they succeed where the sacrifice of Jesus has failed. Move over, Jesus. Who needs you? We're all holy here. You see, and... This is not just an abstract idea. It does have implications for us, both as individuals and as a church. 
Who do we identify with? What church will we choose to belong to? Which leaders will we choose to listen to? As a church, which churches will we choose to share our resources and activities with? Will we, I mean, yes, let's share our resources with churches where we know the gospel is going to be faithfully taught and where people are excited about their salvation and their saviour. But why give more money and more resources if we think that it's going to end up in the hands of a core who thinks that they know God better than the Bible does? Or Dathan, who is more interested in his own comforts and status rather than serving the people around him? Well, I think I know what Moses would say to us. He would say, verse 26, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of all their sins. Move back from those tents. Well, I could go on, but I won't because this application is getting a bit risky. And I want to have a look at the third complaint, which in a way is the saddest of them all. You see, the tragedy of the third complaint is that the grumbling had started with just four men in verse 1. But they were joined by 250 community leaders. And between those 254, they deceived the whole community of the people of God. And by the end of the chapter, 15,000 people were lying dead. Verse 41. The next day, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. See, having believed human leaders, they blamed God and his chosen leaders for all that has happened to them. You see, when the people observed the awful reality of God's judgment for themselves, instead of submitting humbly to that idea or thinking, quick, we need to warn other people about this, they kick and they scream. And they say, that's not right. How could a loving God judge his people? How could a loving God cause such suffering? They put the blame on God rather than looking at themselves. Why? Because they'd already believed the lies of Korah and Dathan and Abraham. The rot had already set in. They couldn't accept that God was behind these terrible events, so they blamed Moses and Aaron instead. That's why, of course, the Bible is so hard on false teachers. They are dangerous. They have the capacity to lead the whole people astray and straight into the danger of approaching a holy God without the protection of Christ. As soon as they turn the people towards the tent of meeting in verse 42, the glory of the Lord appears, and Moses and Aaron, what do they do? They immediately fall face down to the ground because they sense the danger. And God says to Moses, verse 45, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. They fall down. The plague comes. The plague reminds us of Egypt, doesn't it? The plague coming on Egypt. The people here, the people of God, the chosen people of God, were being treated exactly as if they had never been saved and never rescued from Egypt before. The plague had started. Aaron is sent with his censor to make atonement for them. Verse 46, before what? Before the wrath, before the righteous anger of the Lord. The truth, of course, is that the wonder of these verses is not that 14,700 people died, but that the people weren't all wiped out in one fell swoop, every single one of them. But Aaron's mediation worked. And we'll see later in uh, chapter 17 and verses 12 and 13, they saw that it worked. They begged for Aaron's mediation. They said, if not, are we all going to die? 
they began to take it seriously. Well, I wonder whether we are taking all of this seriously enough for ourselves if we haven't already accepted Christ as our Saviour and Lord before our holy God. Or for our friends and family who are still living as though there was nothing to worry about. Or even as a church and our relationships with leaders who don't teach the truth and will lead people astray. These things were given to us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. These things were given to us to remind us to serve as a warning to us. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, can't get our heads around the magnitude of the events that we've just read about and talked about. Sometimes, Lord, we can't get our heads around you. But you are a great God. You are a God who is slow to anger and compassionate and full of grace. And you want to see all of your people saved. You want to see all of your people enter eternal life. Lord, help us to take these warnings seriously, not just for ourselves, but for our friends and our family and for our church fellowship as well. Lord, help us to submit to your will. Help us to submit to your words in all that we do. In the name of Christ, amen.